and welcome to Science is Funny. I am your host, Private, a.k.a. Avery Adams. I am 10 years old and currently in the 5th grade. Joining me today is Skipper, a.k.a. Craig Gerinci, who is now a 69-year-old fossil. Hey, not funny, Private. Kind of funny, Skip. We have two updates. Um, it was Skipper's birthday last week, and now he's a 69-year-old fossil. I may have already mentioned that. And we have a shout-out to Cameron from Perth, Australia, and he suggested a great topic, what is fire? He'll be getting a t-shirt soon. And now for the podcast. Okay, a quick apology. We are very sorry for the delay. We posted the last episode in September, but we're posting this episode this month. I was busy with school and Skipper got a new job. It's about time, you lazy old guy. Anyway, sorry for the delay. So, Skipper, Cameron asked a great question. What is fire? He sure did. The ancient Greeks thought that there were only four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. They believed that everything was made from a combination of those four things. They believed that wood, for example, was a combination of earth and fire, and when it burned, the fire was released, and the earth, in the form of ash, was left behind. Well, that does sort of make sense. Why not just believe that? Sure, it worked for them, but it just isn't true. And I know that you want to know the truth, not something that just sounds good. Yeah, give me truth any day. What is an element? Well, today we know that an element is made of atoms that all have the same number of protons in them. For example, all the atoms in helium have two protons. All the atoms in carbon have six. The hydrogen has only one proton. Today we know that fire is made up of many different substances, so it can't be an element. So what is it then? Well, Cameron said it is not a solid, liquid, or gas. And he's mostly right. Mostly right? How can someone make he mostly right? He either is right or wrong, isn't he? Uh, I don't really know which one it is. I'm confused. (laughs) Well, it isn't that simple, Private. Most complicated questions can't be answered with a simple yes or no, right or wrong. As you get older, you'll see it's why parents sometimes have a hard time answering their children's questions. The answers may be difficult for some younger kids to understand. Okay, this I gotta hear. How can someone be right and wrong at the same time? Okay, let's start by talking about how fire is made and what happens when it's burning. Uh, okay. Let's think about starting a campfire, for example. I've seen my dad start a fire in our backyard. Great, so tell me, how did he do it? Well, he got some tiny twigs and made a pile of them. Then he put some little sticks on the top of those, and then he put some bigger sticks on top of them. Then he took some matches and started the tiny twigs burning, which started the little sticks and then the bigger sticks, until all of it was burning. So now, let's take a look at what was actually going on while the sticks were burning. Okay, I love to watch the campfire. Me too. I don't know anyone who doesn't love to watch a campfire, but what you're watching is a chemical reaction that releases a lot of heat, light, steam, and carbon dioxide gas. Oh great. You just ruined watching a campfire for me for the rest of my life. Also, how does it do that? Remember we talked about molecules? Yeah, so... So wood is a very complicated substance made from oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, and carbon atoms all held together into molecules by attractive forces called bonds, like glue, bonding two pieces of paper together. So attractive like they're pretty? Not funny, Private. Attractive like when two magnets stick together. Kind of funny, Skip. Okay, I think we talked about bonds before in another podcast. We did, you're right. So you know that to form bonds between atoms, it takes energy. And when the bonds break, that energy is released. 
Yeah, I remember. You said that you can't create energy or destroy it. Oh, so that's where the heat and light come from. Right, great. So in the case of wood, there's a lot of energy in those bonds, and when they break, they release their energy, and that makes other bonds close by break. Have your mom or dad hold a piece of paper, which is made from wood, by the way, and make sure you're outside or over the kitchen sink, and then have them start a little fire on one corner of the paper. Look closely, and you will see the line between the white paper and the black carbon marching across the paper. That is where the bonds are being broken and the energy is being released. The flame or fire is the energy being released as heat and light. But there's more. There's tiny particles that are also released as smoke. Where does the steam come from? Well, there's also some water in the wood that turns to steam when it's heated up. And if the flame is hot enough, some of the gases are ionized and become a state of matter called plasma. Isn't plasma part of the blood or something? Fire isn't part of the blood, Skipper. You're making stuff up again. (laughs) No, Private, I'm not making this up. It's a different plasma. And you're right, plasma is a part of our blood. It's pale yellow fluid that the blood cells float in. There's all the chemicals in our body needs, like glucose, sugars, enzymes, signaling proteins, and lots of other stuff. So what is this thing called a plasma? This plasma is the fourth state of matter. Cameron was right when he said there were solids, liquids, and gases. And for a long time, those three states were all we knew about. But scientists and people began to think about things like lightning and the sun and wondered where they fit in. Let's do some further research. Cool. So, Private, before we tackle plasma, let's review a little bit about the other states of matter. Okay, well, Skip, do you remember what molecules are? (laughs) I Yes, please refresh my memory. Old people, you're always forgetting things, like your keys. Hey, I found them, didn't I? I knew where they were all along. Yeah, right. So molecules are made when atoms combine, like when oxygen and hydrogen join to make water, or when chlorine and sodium atoms join to make the salt we use on our food. I love salty potato chips. Stay on track, Private. Okay, okay, but I really like potato chips. Anyway, so in a solid, the molecules are tightly packed together, like people packed in a room. They can move, but not much, the people and the atoms. They pretty much have to stay in one place. So because the molecules can stay in one place, they create a thing, like a rock, ice, or a block of wood. Solids have a definite shape of their own. So what about the molecules in a liquid? The molecules in a liquid don't have a definite shape. Why is that? Because molecules are moving faster and get to move around in the liquid. So whatever shape the container that they are in is will be the shape of the liquid. Huh? Say that again. Skipper, if you put milk in a glass, the milk will be the shape of the glass. If you put water in a garden hose, the water will be the shape of the hose. Oh, I get it. Liquids take the shape of whatever they're in. Good job. Now you're getting it. Not funny, Private. Very funny, Skip. So what about gases? They aren't anything like solids or liquids. Nope. The molecules and gases are moving even faster and completely fill any container they're in. And so you have to keep them in a tightly closed container or they will all leak out. Cool. So if something is in one state, can you change it to another state? Ah, sure. Just drive them over the border. Get it? Drive them from one state to another state. Oh, very funny, Private. Did you make that up all by yourself? Of course. Anyway, the answer is yes. You just have to add energy to slower moving molecules to make them move faster. How can you do that? Duh, well you could build a fire under them. That will add energy to the molecules and make them move faster. But isn't that exactly what Cameron wants to know? What is fire? Right, it is. 
very close to the wood or whatever fuel it is you want to burn is where the oxygen and fuel meet that is where the flame begins but you can't see it right above this area is where the oxygen and fuel react to make the flame that we can see most of the flame is a glowing gas and the color of the flame is due to the temperature and the kinds of stuff in it and what do you mean by color is due to temperature and the kinds of stuff in it as far as temperature is concerned, the hottest part of the flame is blue, and the cooler parts are reddish. If it has copper atoms in it, the blue part of the flame will turn emerald green. If it has potassium atoms, it will turn purple. Stuff like that. Okay, so most of the flame is a gas, but it also has some plasma in it. What is a plasma again? A plasma is made of atoms that have so much energy and are moving so fast that some of their electrons have been stripped away from them, making them charged. It takes a lot of energy, so there's just a little plasma in a flame from wood or from fluorescent lights, but lightning and the sun have atoms that are completely ionized. So if most of the heat and light are coming from the molecules that are moving very fast, what does that mean, Skipper? It means that flame or fire is mostly hot glowing gases with a little plasma mixed in. So Cameron was right and wrong at the same time. He was right to say that it wasn't entirely a gas, but wrong to say that it wasn't a gas. See, right and wrong at the same time. Yay, Cameron. Right, very good, Skipper and Cameron. If something that is moving fast and has a lot of energy hits something that's moving slower, what happens? Wait, there's more? I didn't know there was going to be a test today. Okay, well, I think that when the fast one hits the slow one, the fast one will give some of its energy to the slower one. Now, because the slow one has more energy, it will move faster. But because the faster one lost some of its energy, it will move slower. How did I do? Did I pass? Very good. And if you keep on adding energy to liquid molecules, then pretty soon those molecules will be going so fast that they break away from the liquid and become a gas. Could you give me an example? Sure, I'm so glad you like to ask questions. I love to learn. Okay, then let's think about a cube of ice. Are you thinking of one? Yep, I am. Okay, then you know that the ice is a solid. Why? Mm, because it has a shape of its own and because the molecules are staying in place. Right, okay, now we are going to think about placing the ice cube in a pan and putting it on the stove and turning the stove on. So the pan is getting warmer by getting more energy. Yeah, I get it. So now the part of the pan that the ice is on is going to give their extra energy to the molecules of the ice, and the molecules of ice are going to do what, Skipper? Um, those molecules are going to start going faster and faster. Good job. And when they reach a certain speed, they are going to break away from the solid ice and become... Liquid water? Very good. And if we keep the heat on what happens to that water in the pan? It will start to boil and turn to steam and become water vapor, the gas form of water. Right. So we change water from a solid to a liquid to a gas by changing the speed of its molecules. And if the water vapor gas molecules hit something that has less energy, what happens? Well, they will give some of their energy to the slower ones, and because they lost energy and slowed down, they may turn back to a liquid state. Hey, like when it rains. It rains because the water vapor molecules are hitting some colder, slower-moving air molecules and then losing energy and slowing down, so they turn back to liquid water molecules, which then falls on our heads and gets us wet. How can the weather person tell if it's going to rain or not? 
They use supercomputers to track the high and low pressure patterns that move across the United States, or any country for that matter, and the computers help them make predictions of where and how certain types of weather will occur over those areas where high and low pressure areas and cold and warm air masses meet. So how do supercomputers work? Well, supercomputers work just like regular computers, only much, much faster. Okay, then how do regular computers work then? Wow, we've gone from fire to computers. Pretty good. Okay, well, the only thing that any computer brain or processor can do is count to one. One? No way! Computers can do way more than that. They have Google, they have YouTube, they have video games, they have, like, pretty much everything. How come they can only count to one? That makes no sense! They can only count to one. What you see on the screen is a conversion from the computer counting to one a whole bunch of times and counting really, really fast. But we can count to ten. Why did they build computers that could count to ten? No, we really count from zero to nine, ten digits, and after nine comes a zero again. So we have to put a one next to the zero to indicate we have a set of ten digits. What? Okay, so make a column of numbers, one under the other, from zero to nine. Okay, I have a column of numbers. Now, if you add one more number to that column, you have to put a zero under the nine and place a one next to it to indicate you have ten. If you add another number, you would have one one or eleven. Okay, so how does a computer count if it can only count to one? So let's make another column of numbers, but this time just a zero and one. Okay, got it. Now, if we wanted to add another number to the 1, since we can't go to 2, we would have to put a 0 under the 1 and place a 1 next to it to indicate that you have 2. So it looks like 1, 0 to us is actually a 2 to a computer. And if we add another number to the computer's 10, it will look like 11 to us, but it will really be a 3 to a computer. Why would anyone be crazy enough to want to count like that? Well, it was a German student named Konrad Zusa. He wasn't crazy. He ended up inventing the first digital computer in 1941. So why would he want his computer to only count to one? What good would that be? It was actually a stroke of genius. You see, he realized that he could use switches that are either on or off to represent the one or zero. So his machine could count in binary. See, when one switch was on and another number was added, then that switch was turned off and the one next to it was turned on, just like we did with our columns of 0 and 1. Each switch was called a bit, and eight switches was called a byte. And by turning some switches on and some of the switches off in the byte, electrical circuits could be created to represent numbers, letters, and other characters on a keyboard. So, how come I see pictures on my monitor? Well, the first computers were only able to produce numbers, letters, and some simple symbols on paper. But as the computers became faster and gained millions and millions of extra switches, they began to use some of them to control colors and tiny dots called pixels. And instead of printing everything on paper, they were able to control monitors and place pictures or graphics on them. So what kind of computer did you use growing up? Private, when I was born, there were only four or five computers in the entire world, and they were so big that one of them took up an entire floor of a building. It took many, many people just to operate them, and they cost millions of dollars to buy just one. And they could only add, subtract, multiply, and divide. But I bought a calculator for a dollar, and it does much more than that. It's evolution, Private. 
Once transistors and integrated chips were invented, computers got smaller and faster at an amazing rate. It's been an incredible ride to watch as I grew up. Today, you don't think twice about turning on the virtual reality computer I built to enter an entirely different world that exists only inside that computer. Wow, I never thought of it that way. Thank you, Conrad Zusa and Cameron, and also, yay science. You got that right, Private. Well, that's our podcast for this week. Come back next time for another episode of Science is Fun E. Oh, and don't forget to visit our website at www.scienceisfune.com or listen on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, or just search for Science is Fun E in the podcast section of your favorite podcast app. To suggest possible topics for upcoming episodes, email topics at scienceisfunee.com. And remember, you could win a Science is Fun E t-shirt if you send in a suggestion and we use it in an episode. You can email me at private at scienceisfune.com or skipper at scienceisfune.com. I'm private, aka Avery Adams, hoping you have a great week. TTFN.